Hello and welcome to Accessible Theology. My name is Aaron and I'm here with Michael. And our goal is to make the study of God's word accessible to our listeners so that we and you would better love God, know truth, and live accordingly. Hello and welcome back to Accessible Theology. Uh, today it is just Michael once again, and Aaron should be back uh, by next week uh, from vacation, so hopefully I'll have my comrade with me again then. But for today, it'll just be me, and it, once again we'll be working through a minor prophet and its major message, and today that prophet will be Zephaniah. Uh, so once again, uh, we're working through the 12 uh, minor prophets, and uh, as we come upon Zephaniah, we see once again similar themes. Uh, but I want to emphasize um, both the wrath of God today, and then show its purifying effects in, in a way that Zephaniah emphasizes, not differently or opposed to others, but I, I would say maybe more clearly or more explicitly. So I look forward to showing those themes with you again. Now, the same three questions as has been. Um, the framework for the whole series thus far will once again be in place. And those three uh, qu are questions that we ask and answer each time, and that is once again the creedal connection question, which looks back to Exodus 34, 6, and 7 and shows how that uh, unveiling and revelation of God undergirds the minor prophets. The second question then that we look at is the canonical cohesion question, which looks to show how this particular book, Zephaniah, is picked up in the New Testament and used. So we'll be looking at Revelation 14.5 in particular to show where that shows up and how it is applied in the New Testament. And then lastly, we're going to consider the Christological culmination. And that is looking to the person and work of Jesus Christ and showing how this text, Zephaniah specifically, points to Christ and is fulfilled in him. So that will again be uh, the framework today. Now for some minor uh, background information as we always start with regarding these books, uh, it's important to note that uh, Zephaniah, his name, uh, means that um, Yahweh is protector or Yahweh hides. So it seems as though his parents were faithful believers. And this is significant to note in the time that this book is written because Zephaniah is born, um, it seems, either right at the end of or right after the reign of Manasseh. And if you're familiar with Israel's history, Manasseh was the worst king in Israel's history. He's infamous if you read uh, in, uh, in Kings and Chronicles especially. They mention his tyrannical reign and how he led the people astray and how he built idols and caused the people of Israel to go astray and follow after these idols. And for 50 years, he was really a tyrant. Now, we know at the end of his life, he seems to have turned and repented, but that didn't undo the 50 years of horror that he had brought about over the people of Israel. And so when Zephaniah's parents name him, Yahweh has hidden, it could be a reference to the fact that Yahweh will protect his remnant people, which is really a beautiful uh, picture there. Further, uh, this prophecy takes place in the time of uh, Josiah, who is a, the king who brought great reformation. He, they, during his reign, if you're familiar with Israel's history, it is when the um, priests found the law of God because under Manasseh it just was not being followed or listened to. And under Josiah, the law is found and Josiah rends his garments and goes on really a crusade against idolatry in this amazing turn in Israel's history. Josiah is known as one of the greatest kings. In fact, at one point, um, it is said in the Old Testament that there was not a king greater than Josiah. There's this high hyperbole language used in reference to his righteousness, which is amazing. So Zephaniah is 
prophesying in his day when the law of God is being brought back to the land. So there's some debate whether it's early on in his reign or at the end. The advocates that would say that this book was written early on in Josiah's reign will specifically mention how in, in chapter 1, for example, in verses 8 and 9, it says this, On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and with fraud. And so some people try to say, well, this had to be early on in his reign because those things weren't happening later in Josiah's reign. But it could have been these things took time to get out. You got to think Manasseh was in place for 50 some years and what had so dramatically affected Israel and brought them into unrighteousness. So Reformation would have taken some time. So I, I tend to see this as more written towards the end of Josiah's reign. But either way, it isn't really neat to see how Josiah went on this crusade and said how he would go and just destroy the idols. And throughout this book, the similar language is used of God destroying idols. So it does seem like Josiah was, um, we could say, aligning himself with God's will and serving God's purposes as a, as a righteous king would in this day by destroying the things that God hates. So uh, what, a, what a wonderful example that is to consider in our lives. The things that God hates, we should be, you know, the idols of our hearts that we know that God does not delight in. We should be like Josiah and seek to destroy them and get rid of them. Uh, so regarding the theme of Zephaniah, then, as we begin thinking through the overall framework in light of our three questions, I just want to say this, that Zephaniah, maybe more than any other minor prophet, emphasizes the day of the Lord. So we've talked about this before, how the day of the Lord language oftentimes is referencing this visitation of the Lord's wrath when God will bring his wrath upon the earth in a specific and focused way. And that is clearly the case here in Zephaniah. Let me just read a few verses that emphasize this. And I want to start this emphasis on the Lord's day, uh, on the day of the Lord, I'm sorry, in light of the first question, which is the creedal connection. So let me just remind those of you who might be listening to the for the first time, or in case you have forgotten, the creedal connection goes back to Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where we're told that Yahweh is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and overflowing with mercy. And it also mentions, though, that though he is slow to anger, that he will by no means clear the guilty in Exodus 34, 7. So we see that though God is merciful and loving, and that his uh, chesed, as, as in the Hebrew, his steadfast covenantal love is is clearly portrayed, he will not clear the guilty. So we see that he will judge wickedness. And we've emphasized that throughout all the minor prophets, and that certainly is picked up again, especially when we think about the day of the Lord. So I want to look at uh, Zephaniah 1 and verse 7, where we first see this, where, where Yahweh says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of Yahweh is near. Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons. Then if you jump down to verse 10, we're told again, On that day declares the Lord. And then later on in verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the uh, day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries out al aloud there. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. So you see that this day is not pretty. It's not a God coming and visiting as a 
guest in a peaceful way, but he is bringing his vengeance for the sin of man. And this is how the book of Zephaniah starts. If you look at verse 2 in chapter 1, he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds and heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. So this strong judgment language, God is actively opposed to the sin of man, and he is bringing destruction. So we see this in light of the creedal connection again, that Yahweh will not clear the guilty and he will punish. So we've seen this before and we see it again. But what I want to emphasize that's interesting and beautiful related to Zephaniah in particular is that he kind of gives us a foreshadowing of what we will see explicitly, I believe, picked up in the New Testament as to what we should expect in the end. What I mean is this, the day of the Lord, I, I would submit, is picked up in Christ inaugurating it, meaning that the day of the Lord began, we could say, when Jesus entered the earth because he visited the earth. And notice that Christ came publishing good news. He also took on the wrath of God reserved for man. And we will see the day of the Lord finally, I think, closed or consummated when Christ returns, as it says in Revelation 19, and destroys all wickedness. But that was began already. It's already started. So we could say the day is not a literal day. It refers to, though, God's active judgment for sin. And that is began in Christ and will be concluded finally when Christ returns. Now, I say that to say this. The day of the Lord, when we think about judgment, scripturally speaking, is not just or merely about destruction. It also has a purifying effect that brings righteousness. And this is absolutely essential for us to understand. You see, some of us might think that on the day of the Lord, you might have heard that language before of this destruction. You might think that God, for example, we've actually done another podcast on this in Second Peter 3 and verses 10 through 13, where we see there that, that God will dissolve the heavens, that fire will melt away the earth. And a lot of people read that and they think, well, that means that God's going to destroy the earth and then Christians in the end will go to heaven, but the earth will be destroyed. But that's not the case. We've talked about this in other episodes in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Peter 3, that instead what we see is God purifies the earth and renews the earth. And so that on the earth, righteousness will dwell. In, in the book of Revelation, we see that new Jerusalem actually comes down to earth. So what, what that means then is heaven is when heaven is fully realized on earth as God's people reign on earth in the in the in the, what would say the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. This is significant because what that means is God will not destroy the works of his hands entirely. So we see this strong language, for example, in Zephaniah that he's going to utterly sweep away everything. But I want to transition us in thought to chapter three then to see how this destruction actually plays out. And in Zephaniah chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 8 and show you how it has a purifying effect. We see this. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. Listen to this then. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And now notice then how in chapter 3, verse 9, how he changes then to the conversion of the nations by saying this, 
For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of Yahweh and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of Yahweh. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and, and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What a, what a beautiful passage that we see that just as the day of the Lord brings this great wrath and devastation to God's enemies, it says on that same day, the people of God, the remnant of God, the true believers will be saved, that the humble ones will be spared from this judgment. And that brings us to the second point, which is, again, the canonical cohesion question, which is where we begin connecting this to the New Testament. And I, and again, I already mentioned Second Peter 3, where we see this. And I want to go to Revelation 14, 5 to show the one place in the New Testament where Zephaniah seems to explicitly be picked up. And this is what is said in Revelation 14, 5. I'm going to start in verse 4, actually. It says this. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they, are, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for the Lamb of God, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now notice, this is a vision in this context of heaven, and it speaks of the 144,000, which I believe is a reference to the, the whole people of God from all of salvation history, believing Jews and the church, all those who have trusted in God's promises that were ultimately fulfilled in the personal work of Christ. That is what is meant by this 144,000. And what we see is these are the first fruits of the lamb and they follow him wherever he goes. And I love that picture that just as Jesus said in John 10, that he's the good shepherd and his sheep know his voice and they follow him. Well, we follow him as Christians wherever he goes. And then it, note how in verse five, it says in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. Now this, means that we're acting like Jesus. If you remember from Isaiah 53 and also in Second Peter, that he was silent and entrusted himself to God who judges justly, even though there was no lie found in his mouth. Well, we're like that as Christians, just as Zephaniah predicts. Notice I read it earlier, how it says he will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. So just as the hot wrath of God destroys wickedness, that same crucible, we could say, of God's wrath also is purifying. And it's like if you were to put hay or grass in a fire, what happens? Well, it's burnt up immediately. But what if you put gold or silver? Well, it's actually purified. And that's what's going on here. This intense, passionate righteousness of God, when it is met with Christians, when it's met with true believers, it begins purifying us. It doesn't destroy us. It renews us and makes us new. And that's what we see here, that this language here, too, of pure speech, I think speaks, maybe even we could say, of Acts 2 at the Pentecost, when you have uh, tongues being spoken. What's going on in that context is Babel is being reversed, that just as God changed the languages back in Genesis 11, he is now purifying the speech of all people. If you notice, it talks about he's going to go beyond the rivers of Cush and find his dispersed ones. He's, In other words, he's going to bring in 
the Gentiles. And just as the Gentiles who were outside of God's purposes and spoke different languages were outside of God's plan, he's going to purify us as Gentiles too. This is what this promise is speaking of. And notice that their deeds will not be held against them or they will not be put to shame for them. Instead, he is going to remove that from our midst. And we know that this ultimately comes together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So to conclude the second point on the canonical cohesion, let me reemphasize that this pure speech is picked up in Revelation 14.5 as a defining characteristic of those who are in heaven. So let me just encourage you, Christian, if you're listening to this right now, your, your speech should be pure and beautiful because God has transformed you by faith in Christ. And you need to live like Jesus now, which means that your speech should be edifying. Just as Paul says that no unwholesome speech should come from your mouth. You should speak only what is good, true, pure, and holy because that is who you are now. Christ has transformed you. So this text is speaking of on that day. I believe we already are getting foretastes of that. So let me put it to you this way. If you want to be one of those 144,000 as represented, meaning the, the people of God in heaven, if you want to be in heaven with King Jesus, that's a beautiful and good thing. And the joy of the Christian faith means we can start living that now. You can actually by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6, we can begin living like that now. So if your hope is in heaven, good. But that hope should transform your current living to such an extent that you begin living purely now and your speech should be transformed. If it is true that the gospel has changed your heart, then that also means that the gospel will change your tongue and you will speak in a new and transformed way. And let me then close by saying this regarding the Christological culmination pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to read from verses 14 uh, through the end of the chapter. Again, beautiful verses. Zephaniah chapter 3 is one of the best chapters in the Old Testament. I just love it. And so I want to read these verses to show how it points us to King Jesus. So we see starting in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Yahweh has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring in at that time I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says Yahweh. Oh, Christian, I hope that these verses encourage your heart to hear. Note how in them Yahweh removes our judgments. This points us directly to the cross of Jesus Christ, where our judgment is removed from us because the Lamb of God suffered in our place. What This verse takes us right to the cross, and notice how it calls Jesus, the King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. We see this in John 1, that he, that the eternal word took on flesh and dwells among us. Note this, Christian, 
God wants to be with us and near us. This is the gospel, that God, though Adam and Eve fell away and tried to hide, that God for the rest of human history is drawing near to us, setting up all of history that in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ would be born of a woman, take on flesh, share in our humanity so that he could be near and draw us near to him. Notice it says that he is a mighty one to save because Jesus will save us with the with his mightiful righteousness, with the power of his purity, with the power of his perfect life, that he, because he is fully God, was able to actively obey every law of God, every expectation put upon man. Jesus fulfills that for us. And then lastly, I want to point out this. This is so good, and I think Christians... We need to hear this. If you want to live with pure speech, if you want to hope in heaven, I want to call you to note how he says this, that he will sing over us with loud singing, that he will exalt over us. You need to know that the the triune God that has saved us, the Father who has elected us, the Son who has atoned for us, the Spirit who applies that work to us, our triune God sings over us. He delights in us. In John 14 through 17, Jesus is giving his last discourse, and in there he speaks of the fact that we'll be wrapped in the everlasting arms of triune love, that we'll be brought in near to God, and that we will experience the very love that the Father and Son have for each other because we will have the Holy Spirit who is the love of the Father and Son. And this delightful love that looks like, you know, for example, if you look at the baptism of Christ when when God the Father says audibly that this is my beloved son and I delight in him and you need to listen to him. This is the love that we are brought into. We we are partakers of this triune love. And so when we are brought into God, when we when we are saved by faith in Christ and the new covenant and brought to Jesus, we are brought into this love. And what a what a beautiful picture that is. And as as a point of application, I think it's worth mentioning too that we, uh, if you're a parent, if you're listening to this and you have children, or if you hope to have children one day, um, or even if you're out of church and you're single and there are kids, I hope that you show kids, uh, particularly in the church, that the smile of God is is on them, that the love of God is for them, that children see that we delight in them, so that when they're told as they grow older that the father delights over them. That metaphor is not blurred. We should be that to especially little ones. And even beyond that, we should be that for each other. How many Christians know you as someone who just delights in other believers and shares the love that God has for them with them? I want to challenge you with that. So so many times we're, we're in a polarized time. I think of the stuff that goes on on social media. Um, and so many times the church is put as though it's at odds with each other, as though we're just like the world and just this fracture. And I think this is a good reminder that Yahweh delights over his people, that he is drawn near to them and sings over them, and that he will do that for all eternity. So I hope that we as Christians reflect that to one another, that we don't feel marginalized or pushed away, but that we feel other believers and that, that we ourselves extend to other believers this same delightful love that God has for us and for them. So I pray that that would be our hearts. And so as we think about the message of Zephaniah, I want to conclude by mentioning that, that the judgment of God and the wrath of God 
is for his enemies, but that same intense love for righteousness that would bring and about in God the desire to judge his enemies, that same intense righteousness also purifies and transforms the Christians so that we would speak purely, that our language would be loving and unifying, that it humbles us because we understand that we are just saved by grace and nothing else, that God is kind to us in Christ, and that is the grounds of our salvation. And then from that, I pray that because we expect to be those who are in heaven, who no lie or deceit is found in our mouths, that we'd begin living like that now, that those future realities would invade the present, so to speak, that we would begin speaking wholesome, pure, good, virtuous things, that we would be marked as Christians, not by being crass, not by sounding like pop culture, but by sounding like Jesus, but by we, that scripture would so inform our language that we speak more Bible than we speak pop culture. So I pray that the future would change our current speech. And that lastly, then to uh, wrap this up, that like Jesus, who drew near to us and sings over us and delights over his bride, I think of um, a husband singing over his bride on their wedding day. So and this is Jesus drawing near and loving his church to the to the end because he delighted in her. In the same way, I want to call Christians who have been brought into the church to love your fellow Christians like Jesus loves us, to, to be the kind of person who uh, sings over other believers and praises them and it, because, not just praises them for their own sake, but praises them because they've been brought in by the grace of God. So would this be true of us? Would we be marked by pure speech, by wholesome speech, and would we delight in our fellow believers the way God delights in us as we wait for Jesus to return so that we will have no sin anymore and we will not be in any way marked by our uh, sin and our shame, but we will rejoice for all uh, eternity as God rejoices and exults over us. What a day that will be. And until then, uh, we want to charge you as we always do to love God, know truth, and live accordingly.